This podcast is made possible by Workday and U.S. Bank. Hello, this is Paul Lawville, CFO of Proofpoint, and you're listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 341. at which companies are growing and how quickly we are trying to get real-time data to make smart decisions about growing the top line, um, understanding where we're making investments and is it really paying off the way that we had intended. There's so much data out there today and the question just is, is how do you get at it in a way to understand the insights and, and trends to make you more successful than your competitors? From Middle Market Media, this is CFO Thought Leader, where we speak to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations. I'm Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to Jenny Cray, CFO at software developer Collabrio, where she is today bringing past M&A experience to bear, along with a sharp focus on real-time data, how to access it, and how to put it to use in decision-making quickly. Our talk with Jenny begins after these words from our sponsor. Just as a house needs a good foundation, your business needs a solid technology foundation. At Workday, a different approach to finance technology is giving growing mid-size organizations a distinct advantage. Workday's flexible architecture means that when business conditions change, finance can easily make changes to business processes. To learn more about how a finance system from Workday supports mid-size organizations from the ground up, visit us at Workday.com. Workday, built for the future. Hello, we're speaking to Jenny Cray, CFO of Calabria. Jenny, welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Not at all. Thank you for the time and allowing us to uh, take a look back with you uh, to start off with uh, and what those career experiences might have been that you feel helped prepare you for a CFO role. What would you tell me? Uh, you know, it's been a, a fast-paced journey, um, you know, in regards to some career milestones that I had. Uh, the first corporate role I had at a public company was in 2002 when Sarbanes-Oxley was enacted. Um, you can only imagine what that did for me in, in my role when I was uh, a controller there. Um, I also had the opportunity to be involved in my first three acquisitions at Secure Computing before uh, we were acquired by Maxi. Um, and since then, I've been a part of a total of nine M&A transactions, six on the buy side and three on the sell side. Um, and I would also say, you know, um, for me, the first time being a CFO was at Network Instruments two companies ago. It was PE owned, and that was definitely a pivotal point for me in regards to being, you know, the type of financial leader I am today at a fast-paced growing company. So when you arrive at Calabrio, you've already 
done several tours of duty here. You've lived through quite a bit of M&A activity. What is this type of role you now want to create for yourself? Yeah, you know, for Calabrio, they actually closed on their first acquisition as a company three weeks after I joined. So it really was about, you know, creating a job where I'm able to help the company keep pace with adding another company very quickly overnight while we're continuing to grow organically as well. We want to be able to scale with the business and grow the top line as quickly as we can. Um, that requires a lot of processes and systems that can help us do that globally, but as well as being able to have the right visibility as quickly as possible into the metrics of our business. So it's really about creating visibility and scalability while we're able to tuck in and integrate successfully the companies that we're acquiring. You know, it's interesting. One of the areas that we've been touching on with a number of finance leaders uh, is uh, private equity partners. And you had mentioned how they had played a role in your, your career ongoing. Um, what would you share with us in terms of how to, how to work alongside private equity partners? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think first and foremost is understanding the reason why the PE firm is actually doing the acquisition of the company itself, right? Because if, if the executive management team is on board with the reason why the PE firm is acquiring the company, then objectives can be set properly to help align with the PE firm, right? Is the PE firm acquiring the company for it to be a platform company to do tuck-in acquisitions? Is it to help um, scale on the back end? Right? Maybe the, the top line, the sales engine, is working as planned, but that there's help that's needed to fuel the back end from a scalability reporting perspective that will continue to help the growth on the top line. Um, once there's alignment in regards to the wise the PE firm, it has been uh, done the acquisition, then it's a matter of, you know, at the routine meetings, being able to show how you're meeting those objectives and having metrics that align with them so that they can have the visibility that they need to say, okay, this acquisition is working as planned, or, oh, wait, no, this isn't actually what we had intended, and how do you course correct together from a PE firm and management perspective to make sure you're staying on track with the purpose of the, the PE firm's reason for the acquisition? Curious, though, when you arrived, you said you arrived, and, and of course, an acquisition had just gone down. What did you do exactly as you, uh, you enter? Is this something you immediately... Uh, uh, from past experience, it took steps to do? Absolutely. You know, um, first and foremost, I had an idea um, prior to my actual first day that this was transpiring and how quickly it was going to happen once I started. So I needed to make sure that I came in already ready to hit the ground running hard to build out a financial model, but as well as to bring in that play group, playbook from an integration perspective that I would used at my other previous M&A um, events that I had been a part of. So I was able to come into a company that hadn't done an acquisition before and already said, hey, have some integration playbook templates. Now let's customize them to get us ready to make sure that we can be successful and have the right integration plan in place once the deal closes. Now, before we go any further, let me ask uh, about Calabrio and what sets its offerings a part in the market? Yeah, so, you know, today, customer experience is a priority for all businesses, and companies are looking to make every interaction engaging, insightful, and profitable, and we can help them do that 
Unlike our competitors, Calabrio offers a fully integrated customer engagement suite, and customers get the same experience with our product no matter where it is deployed, whether it's cloud, on-premise software, or it's hybrid. You know, Calabrio is a very forward-thinking company, and it's an attractive time to be joining the team as we're in, a, in extreme growth mode. Okay, so just in very general terms, it's software. It's about measuring uh, the customer uh, experience. You know, here's another way that I like to talk about our um, business and our solutions, our our suite. Um, You know, we focus on three areas in the contact center. It's call recording, workforce management, and speech analytics. And those are the three that, you know, together combined, a customer is going to get the most power in understanding what's happening with the customer experience. So just curious, who is it uh, inside the customer account that your salespeople or marketing people are are reaching out to today? No, we're working with, um, there's typically a, a, call it today's term is VP of customer success, right? It's your call, it's your customer support center. It's your call center. It's your contact center. So typically who's ever driving that in a partnership along with corporate IT. And I would suspect that, uh, Calabrio is on this journey where in years to come, it's going to be largely a SaaS offering. So therefore, the model, your business model, and everything you're involved with is likely changing as well. It is. You know, that was very interesting joining at the time that I did is that we've had um, a quicker conversion to SaaS than what we had been originally planning for earlier this year. We had just launched our multi-tenant single platform cloud solution in um, September of last year. And so we're seeing this conversion to staff. So, you know, that makes my job exciting and interesting at the same time in regards to trying to measure the health and metrics of both of those platforms. Yeah, so when it comes to, and we always like to ask about customer success and metrics, I, I, one would believe that you, you folks are pretty on top of this. And I mean, there's some obvious ones, renewable revenues and what have you, but what else would you tell us about how you measure customer success from a finance leader perspective? Yeah, you know, you're right. Obviously, you know, renewal rates, uh, retention rates, cross-sell, upsell, those are very key metrics. But, you know, for us internally, we're also looking at, you know, what's the time to install our customer and add value? You know, keeping down, how are we looking at our escalations and the time and the time to resolve? You know, and that, those are great day-to-day use of the product metrics, but we also like to make sure we are reaching out to the customer in ways to understand and hear what they're saying is working for them and not. We have annual um, Collaborate Customer Connect conferences, both in the U.S. and EMEA, and we'd love to get feedback direct from our customers there in regards to how they're using it, the experience, and what can we learn from them to add into future product sets. Okay. We want to ask you uh, for a finance strategic moment, and again, this is where we we call it an aha moment, where your lines of sight into the organization gave you uh, sort of a unique perspective to identify either a problem, a challenge, or an opportunity, or uh, some other sort of sizable strategic insight. What would that have been? Yeah, you know, the one that comes to the forefront of my mind is when I was at Secure Computing. It was the first company where I was at where I had mentioned I had been a part of being on the uh, buy side for three acquisitions. And it was also my first time being on the sell side when Maxi had acquired us. And I thought I had known or could relate 
to what the companies were going through that we had acquired in understanding um, just their, their thoughts on being acquired. I thought we were taking good care of them, they were, that we were partnering with them, and that they were very engaged. Once I was part of a company that was acquired, it's different. There's a lot of unknowns and uncertainties and questions that go through your head um, in regards to, you know, what's relevant to your current role, who you're going to continue working with. You know, it's very different when you interview for a position. It's a mutual understanding that you're agreeing to go work for an employee, employer, and they understand what they're getting as an employee. When there's an acquisition, there isn't a mutual agreement to that. You're not making that choice as an employee to go work for this new company that now owns you. So that was an aha moment for me and just trying to help understand every time I'm a part of an M&A uh, event in regards to helping both sides of the equation understand what people are going through when they're actually on the sell side, right? How do you continue to get them engaged and focused? How do you quickly get answers in regards to what's the plan for them and for the company and what's that vision? so that you can keep up productivity and keep up morale as quickly as possible. You know, there's no science behind it or a playbook to it because there's such a human element in regards to trying to continue to, to tuck in and take care of the, the people that just all of a sudden came on board overnight. So, interestingly, you are focused on, the, on really the human element of the, uh, the merger or the acquisition. Um, the employees who can quickly become disengaged or look for opportunities elsewhere. Yes. Yep, very much so. Um, because an acquisition is very transactional, right? Um, deal closes overnight, all of a sudden you've just added on another group of people to your team. So how do you approach it in a way that adds um, the fact that you're making people feel very relevant and important and that everybody is important to the to the go-forward success of the, the company and the, and the vision for the reason for the acquisition. Um, because I think people can get caught up if you're on the buy side, you're the acquiring company and you've never been acquired before, that you talk to the new people as if they're a part of the organization, they understand the terminology and they're just going to keep moving forward. You actually have to step back and realize that you have to kind of convince them and encourage them that this was the right thing to do and here's why we're doing what we're doing and to stop and actually listen to them about what worked in their current role and the why they did what they did and how do you fold that into the go-forward plan. I, I want to ask the question, given all the M&A activity you've been involved in on both sides, one of them, uh, one of the deals didn't go quite as planned. One of them was a little more uh, troubling uh, than the next without identifying it specifically. I'm wondering what uh, was the contributing factor? Yep. I, th I think that's important, too. I'm, I'm going to share kind of one that didn't go as well, but I'm going to show also I think it's more important to talk about the one that did go well, the ones that have gone better, I would say. Um, you know, I would say the, the ones that go better are the ones where they do take the time to understand what worked really well and what made the company really excellent and where did they excel um, for where the company that is doing the acquisition may not have that expertise and growth and knowledge, but also to understand from the company that was acquired, what's the pace in which you can be rolling out the changes because of the fact that when you do an acquisition, there is a integration 
checklist or playbook, that it's really easy for the team that is a part of the buy side that just acquired the company to just want to quick check the box, right? If the team that is a part of the integration that just acquired a company stops and listens and helps understand where maybe that they can modify their playbook and make it so that it's much more successful and woven into the things that made the company that was just acquired successful, that's going to make the integration go a lot smoother. At least you're showing that you can get buy-in and that you're listening to the company that got acquired. You may not be able to take all their ideas, right, but at least you're saying that you're listening and you can tell them the whys of things that don't go the way that they would like it to, why it needs to happen the way that it does. So I would say the, the ones that didn't go well were the ones that came in and just put down their integration checklist and just went through all the boxes and took out all the, the morale and the excitement and the secret sauce of what was making that company so special in the first place. They came in and they put in their own playbook and the way that they, their, that company gets things done and it just lost all the magic of what made the company appealing for the acquisition in the first place. In light of uh, your answers so far, I am eager to ask you our next question, which is, what are your priorities as a finance leader when it comes to the workforce? What do you view your priorities as being? Yeah, you know, the, the priorities are making sure that um, they understand the pace of the change and being able to um, be innovative in what they're doing, um, being able to come up with ideas and see them through, not just, again, come in and do exactly what they're being told, but that they can see, okay, wait, there's a faster way I can get this done. There's a fast way I can get at the data. Huh. This data doesn't look right. I think I'm going to go research it before I push it over the fence for somebody else to go find, right? So priorities as being is helping the team be strategically thinking about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and the data that it's providing so that we can get insights and trends as quickly as possible to help drive the business. Okay, we're going to move to our mentoring round where I get to ask you several quick questions intended to inspire and mentor aspiring finance leaders. What's one thing that's exciting you about finance and business today? Yeah, if you haven't picked up on kind of a, a theme that I've used in a lot of my answers, it's, it's, it is really the, the pace at which companies are growing and how quickly we are trying to get real-time data to make smart decisions about growing the top line, um, understanding where we're making investments, and is it really paying off the way that we had intended. It, um, there's so much data out there today, and the question just is, is how do you get at it in a way to understand the insights and, and trends to make you more successful than your competitors? What do you wish someone had told you at the start of your CFO career? Uh, uh, so many things, but the one that comes to mind the most and that I try to use with people that I know eventually will go into the CFO role is, um, you know, it's when you start at a fast-paced company and you understand what the initiatives are, it may not necessarily be about how you get things done, but it's about getting it done. And what I mean by that is, you know, as financial leaders, we tend to be cost-conscientious, and we think that we are doing ourselves a favor if we save the company money. And there are times where there are dollars that are actually earmarked or allocated to just go spend and get the, get the reporting. Go, go get the milestones, go get these initiatives done. 
And I think as a CFO, I wish I would have just known before I walked into my first job as a CFO, do not try to save money if it's being emphasized to just cross the finish line. And you're not going to get gold stars for how you got it done. You get gold stars for getting it done. And that doesn't apply to everything, right? The, 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 the high visibility priorities, when you walk in the door as a CFO, they've probably just said, here's what you can take. Go spend all this money to go get it done if that's what you need. You're not going to get gold stars for, for saving us money if it means then you're sacrificing the timing of getting uh, reporting in, initiatives done, new systems in place, new talent. Don't wait. Okay, I have a, another career-oriented question for you because I, I was looking at your, your LinkedIn bio. You came up uh, through audit and, and I would imagine public accounting, and yeah. you, you certainly took the controller path. Um, and I'm always curious how, uh, as a controller, you were able to broaden yourself and develop into a leader. And maybe there were mentors. Maybe you were embedded in different parts of the organization for periods of time. Um, is there something you could share with us? How did you, how were you able to broaden yourself into, into a leader, a finance leader? You know, I think for me, it was getting the advice early on in my corporate career to keep raising my hand when I wanted to take on new initiatives and get involved in the business. And if I kept doing that, sometimes the answer was no, because the timing wasn't right. But the more I did it, uh, the more exposure I got to the operations of the business and became a part of more of the strategic planning. So I did not wait for people to give me the next assignment. I didn't wait for my title to change. I was curious. I had a lot of curiosity. I very much wanted to understand the bigger picture of what was happening in the business. And I mastered my core responsibility, created capacity, and kept asking questions and throwing out ideas and getting involved in things. I probably didn't have to be, but wanted to be. And it worked where I was able to balance that with my core responsibilities and, and keep pace and then giving ideas and contributing in areas I didn't have to be. So as that happened, I think then management saw the opportunity for me to, to just kind of keep me involved, keep giving me more. The involvement I got, my first exposure to the sales side of the business was at Compellent Technologies. And um, once I was involved in that and I really enjoyed it, I could, that's where I continue to drive in all of my positions I've had since then is to just keep being involved in what's happening on the sales side and driving the top line and the growth. A good portion of your career uh, geographically was in the greater Minneapolis, uh, St. Paul region. Have you moved around a bit during the course of your career? Uh, just a wee bit. Um, I had the opportunity to transfer out to the KPMG Honolulu office um, back in 1998. So I was out there for six months. Um, came back, wanted to be closer to family again. Um, but since then, I've um, been in, in Minneapolis. A lot of people must have given you a hard time about uh, not staying longer. <laughs> How to get back to Minneapolis. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what I was thinking. I should have stayed longer. What personal habit do you believe has contributed to your professional success? You know, I really um, believe in making sure that when I need time off and to check out of work, that I do. You know, it's very important for me to be engaged with my family and friends on a, on a regular basis, um, traveling. Um, it doesn't mean that, you know, every once in a while I'm not checking my email, but um, I definitely make it a priority to go out and have fun, um, 
and get away from work. And, and that refreshes and recharges me to come back and keep hitting it hard um, in the office. Is there a book you'd recommend to aspiring finance leaders? I do. Um, it's not a typical leadership book, but I find it very interesting for the technology space that I'm in and also just for anybody, regardless of the industry that they're in and how they think about their role in the, in the company that they work for. But it's called Only the Paranoid Survive by Andre Grove. It does a great job talking about how technology has evolved since the mid-'70s and what gave the certain large tech companies that we know of. At certain times, Apple, IBM, what gave them the competitive advantage at the time? And it was really about never settling once you've hit certain milestones or projects or goals that you wanted to hit. You always have to be thinking about what's next. I think that's really important for all of our jobs that we're in is to not just have our standard objectives and saying, well, today I've, I've gotten everything done, so I'm good, great. No, it's okay, I've got this done, but what's next? And always knowing that there are competitors out there that are trying to be better than you, so how do you continue to have that natural desire to be better than them and trying to stay one step ahead? Thought Leader listeners, don't go anywhere. We're going to be asking CFO Jenny Cray for her 12-month finance leader priorities right after these words from our sponsor. You want smart, clear, and honest guidance to help you meet the financial goals of your middle market business. With U.S. Bank, you have a partner who will help you find the right solutions to help your organization reduce payment costs, enhance control, improve cash flow, and expand your spend visibility. U.S. Bank's dedication to making ethical decisions and doing the right thing is at the heart of what they do, and their efforts haven't gone unnoticed. They've been named a 2017 World's Most Ethical Company for the third consecutive year by the Ethisphere Institute. To learn more, visit uspayment.com slash middle market. Okay, our, our final question. What are your priorities as a finance leader over the next 12 months? Yeah, you know, um, already have accomplished a lot in the, in the first eight months of being here, but over the next 12 months, it's, you know, continued M&A activity um, for us, um, global expansion, and then continue to focus on the operations in regards to how to scale and building out that real-time reporting that we need so that we can pivot as needed or understand what is working really well and continue to add resources behind those initiatives that are helping us excel on the top line. Jenny Gray, thank you for joining us on CFO Fault Leader. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And don't forget, Thought Leader listeners, you can now go premium at CFOFaultLeader.com.